You down with DMD? Yeah, you know me. You down with DMD? Yeah, you know me. You down with DMD? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with DMD? You down with DMD? Yeah, you know me. You down with DMD? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with DMD. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with DMD? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the modest, motivated, and magnanimous Mad Wizard Merwin. What's up, Sean? I am here, Chris. It is it is a nice Saturday morning. It is starting to get cooler in western New York, which I enjoy. Yeah, until like, you know, two days from now, and it'll be like 90 again. Well, shh, we don't talk about that. We, <laughs> we enjoy this 70-degree, low-humidity weather while we can. A- absolutely. Um... Aside from that, we're going to get into talking about being a CEO of a company some more today, right? That is true. We'll be talking about that for a bit, um, but we are going to talk about Chapter 2, uh, at least part of Chapter 2 of Acquisitions Incorporated, the hardcover D&D book. Mm-hmm. But before that, we have some announcements, and they're both Eberron-related. So let's mm-hmm. get into the first one, which is Eberron Rising from the Last War, which was announced. It was. It was teased back at the Descent event in L.A. a couple months ago, but there has not been an official announcement until now. And as usual, it was leaked by someone, you know, Amazon, I think, was the was the culprit this time. They put it out a couple days early. Uh, but Wizards followed up pretty quickly with their own announcement that the book would be called Eberron Rising from the Last War, it will contain everything that players and DMs need to run their D&D games in Eberron. And if you are familiar with Eberron, then you know what's coming. If you're not familiar with it, the overview is uh, Eberron is kind of a magic-fueled world, although the magic is broad but not deep, if that makes sense. Um, so magic, you know, it, it, uh, it informs most of society. So there are airships, you know, there are lightning trains, there are there are things um, like dragon-marked houses that sort of run different aspects of society. So there's a halfling dragon mark that uh, is all about kind of inkeeping. Yep, so, House Calandra. Yeah, yep. So so think of Holiday Inn, right? It's a, it's a Holiday Inn franchise, um, but they're extra special at, at taking care of people. Except the Holiday Inn franchise part are the low-end yeah, people. True, that's true. That's true. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's this, it's not quite steampunk. Um, it's kind of magic punk. It's magic punk. Right, I would say. And one of the cool things about it is it's, it kind of combines the, the noir-filled world of post-World War II with with that sort of coming off this almost cataclysmic event, so people are both relieved, but they're still um, understanding that this evil and this tension in the world could come back at any point. Yeah, this is at, a, this is at the end. Usually, games start um, three years after the end of the what they call the last war, which lasted a hundred years. Right. Um, people think it's going to stick this time because. One of the countries, Seer, uh, is gone now because somebody essentially released a nuclear bomb on mm-hmm. Seer, which right. covered it in this gray mist and turned it into the Mornland. Right. So, you know, there was this, there was a cataclysmic event that didn't hit the whole world. It just hit this one nation. And so people were like, whoa, okay, now it's getting real. Let's step back and reevaluate this. But there's still a bunch of intrigue between the nations. So there's an Indiana Jones feel versus, you know, Indiana Jones versus the Nazis sort of feel uh, to it. And then you can stick any sort of D&D trope in there, and, and, and it works. So it is, it is a setting that is much loved by D&D fans, especially those who got into D&D during the third edition days, mm-hmm. um, because that's when, the, uh, that's when the setting came out. And it came out of a contest that Wizards of the Coast ran to find a new setting. And Keith Baker, uh, who is the designer of the world, along with some of the folks at Wizards, won that setting contest. So right there, there was this love for it because it came from, you know, it came from the masses, right? It came from the best of the non-designer folks, not at Wizards. 
and so it's it's you know it's a setting that's rich in terms of the game, but it's also rich in terms of the story behind it, um, how how it came to be. So all, you know all of those things come together to to bring fans who love this uh, setting this new book. Uh, we're getting a lot of actual Eberron next year, this coming year, because of uh, the book that Keith Baker is also putting out. Yep. That we talked yep. about last week. Exactly. Last week? Two weeks ago? A couple weeks ago, yeah. But, um, you know, his project. And anyone can create uh, Eberron content. They can use Eberron IP if you publish it on the DMs Guild. So, you know, there's already content there for you if you're interested in it. And Wizards put out a proof of concept version of this on the DMs Guild already uh, that you could get. And so this book, you know, this hardcover will be, you know, some of that updated, some of the stuff from the uh, Unearthed Arcana, like the... Uh, the Artificer? Yeah, the Artificer. Uh, and there was also Dragon Marks were covered in the Unearthed Arcana, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we talked about it. Yep. So, you know, so that content's been out there. It's been being playtested, uh, and it's now ready for primetime. So the book will be out in the middle of November. Should and, be pretty cool. Yep. Uh, I know I'm looking forward to it, as are a lot of people. I I was lucky enough to work in some of the organized play campaigns for Eberron during 3rd edition. Um, Mark of Heroes, I did some writing. And then I oversaw Zendrick Expeditions, uh, that campaign. And so I know that there's a great love for it uh, in organized play as well. Mm-hmm. I am... Um, Actually, I'm running two Eberron campaigns right now. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been... It, it is well-loved for many people. It is their favorite uh, favorite D&D &D setting. It's mine. It's, yeah. very, it's very much fantasy uh, mashup of uh, World War One and World War II, like Sean. Mm -hmm. like people say at the end of World War II, I mean, I've uh, heard Keith actually say, like, right in front of my face, like, it's if World War One and World War II were kind of meshed together historically. Sure. Yeah. Like it's good stuff. Like if you like all that political intrigue type things, and you're missing it from your D and D game, and you kind of want more of it, like because of treaties and things like that, and the houses and how they function, and the countries and how they function, and how there's all sorts of spies everywhere. Like you know, this is really good stuff. Yep. Although you don't even have to play it that way, because you could just go to Zendrix and then go, uh, you know, running yep. through temples, running away from boulders or giants. Yep. yep. Uh, all those things, and there's you know, and that we're just touching the very surface of. A lot of the stories that you could tell there, because we haven't even talked about like the Kalistar and and the Draconic Prophecy and all of those things uh, go into it. But. Yeah, I mean this this game really is the D and D of the the pulps, the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirty pulp magazines. Yep. And I don't mean pulp like two fisted pulp action. I mean all of it. There is there's the horror stuff in there. There's the um. Like the Cthulian horror type stuff with Zoria and whatnot. There's the 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 Doc Savage type stuff in there. There's the um, Maltese Falcon type stuff in there. You get all of it. Right. Yeah, it's that's totally true. It's They they did a great job when they originally designed the world uh, to make sure that these different stories had a place in Eberron, so that was cool. They even put the Lost World in there in two different ways. There's a whole country with dinosaurs and halflings, and there's a whole country that's overgrown with giant monsters. Yes, very true. And if you want to get into, like Chris said, the Cthulian thing... Um, there's the, the Dream World. Um, well, there's, there's that one. Yeah, there's yeah. two of them, right? There, you can right. use the Quarry from the Dream, the the land of the plane of dreams and nightmares, which is where the Kalistar and the Quarry come in. Yep. And then you can use the uh, Zoriat, the plane of madness, and the Delkir, which are like the f more physical Cthulian horror type stuff that does a lot of the f um, some body horror and some madness and things like that. Yep. So all all good stuff, all there. And in a couple of months, we will have access to it. Mm-hmm. To go along with that, there's something else. There is. So the Adventures League wants to get out, get in on the Eberron goodness. So the Eberron, uh, the Adventures League will be releasing a self-contained season of adventures for Eberron called the called Oracle of War. Um, one of the reasons I know this is because I am going to be working on it. Uh, Will Doyle will be handling the story side of things, and I will be handling the logistical side of getting the adventures out on time, keeping all the trains running. And there are uh, 
there will be 20 episodes, 20 adventures, featuring Eberron's greatest villains as they conspire with or against the Dragonmark houses to seize control of the Oracle of War, a magical artifact with the power to decipher the Draconic prophecy and steer the future of the world. As factions collide, a small group of scavengers from a remote Mornland salvage base find themselves holding the fate of Eberron in their hands. I want to note a couple of things here. Some people have read this and made some assumptions, and I want to get that get things straight right now. The key words that I spoke there were self-contained and across 20 episodes. Um, this is going to be a completely different kind of campaign than the Adventures League campaign that you play in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, we're going to do completely new and different things. Uh, we know that people that love the Forgotten Realms Adventures League, who love having you know, 10,000 adventures that they could run at any given time may not like the small self-contained nature of this. That's okay. Um, That's why they have that one. Right. That's why you can play the Forgotten Realms one. Um, We want to do something different. We want to reach out to new audiences who might not want the Forgotten Realms kind of campaign. Um, And since it's a limited run thing, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, then we'll see what comes next. Um, I don't want to go into too many further details uh, because, you know, some things are still being hashed out. Uh, but as the end of November approaches, you will hear more and more and more about uh, about the campaign. Do we know when it's coming out? It will launch at GameholeCon. You'll be able to play all of the Tier 1 adventures as well as a Tier 1 epic adventure. Interesting. So, it's. I, I will say this: when it says across uh, twenty episodes, that's going to be a core storyline. So if you just play those twenty adventures, you will get the complete story. Any epics or any other one-offs we run will be extra. Uh, there won't be a lot of them, but there may be options to play, uh, like say an epic at every tier. That's just a guess, but uh, you know something like that. I feel like it's a pretty safe guess with Will Doyle being involved. Yeah, you know, he yep. likes doing those things. Yep. So you know we're going to keep it limited. We're going to keep it self-contained, uh, and tell a great story. Hopefully, people will like. I hope so too. I'm very excited about this. Like, uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm I'm very very interested in. I'm also interested in seeing how you all do it because I'm um, I'm using the uh, the James Intercaso led campaign as one of as the basis for one of my campaigns. Uh, I'm not we're not running it with the AL rules. I'm just using it as inspiration and whatnot. Sure, sure. But uh like for instance, one of the adventures is about uh getting it getting information at a party. Mm-hmm. Uh when I I'm I'm curious to see what you folks do with the adventures because when I read this thing, it's like a twenty it's like a thirty page adventure or like a it's like twenty pages of text. I only needed to like pull out like a page of that information to run my my game, right? Like, mm-hmm. but uh, like you needed hooks. There it seems like there's a lot of information in there that is like over information. So I'm hoping that these new adventures will streamline some of that, so that it's not so hard to to parse. Because it took me longer to parse it than it took me to uh, right to convert it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Adventures League is is or any adventure um, is. It's always that tension, right, between not enough information and too much information. Mm-hmm. And, and what, I, you know, I say that because that's the running theme for these adventures that I've been trying right. to like convert over for myself. Right. Um, and and so yeah, it, it's always there. You know, should I add this? Will it will it help a, a DM who might not be familiar with Eberron, who might need a little extra information, or who's not comfortable running adventures? Uh, and ad-libbing, so you want to give them too much, versus you know giving too much, so people are losing the information that is relevant. And so yeah, there's always that tension. And you know we'll we'll see the zeitgeist swing um, for a couple of years. Maybe it'll build to more and more and more content. And then we'll hit a point where we say, okay, let's try to cut it back. And then the pendulum will swing the other way, and we'll get very skeletal adventures 
that require the DM to fill in some blanks, and you know we'll go in that direction until we get a lot of pushback and say, well, well I can't run this because you know I had to prep it in an hour and I couldn't, and then we'll see it swing back the other way. It's it's always a a constant you know battle to to get it right, and there isn't a right because there are so many different audiences and so many different levels of DMs or uh, you know DMs being uh, feeling good about ad libbings, you know, and so it's it's, it's just yeah, it's funny it's to me. It's funny to me because it wasn't even about ad libbing. It was just like um, it was a little about ad libbing, I suppose, because it was like here's five different ways that this could go for like each thing that happened. Here's like five other different ways for this could go. I'm like, I get, I get, I get that, but uh, mm-hmm. that's hard to parse. It really yeah. is, even for a new game master. Like I, I'm fairly comfortable parsing adventures these days. Mm-hmm. And even for me, there was a lot of information there that I'm like, I don't know what... Uh, and it didn't really give me what was relevant. Yeah, and, and that's quite possible, too. I I don't know this What I'm talking adventure. about, yeah. And I'm not, gonna, about, I'm not throwing anybody and, under the bus, that's why. No, no that's, and that's fine. And you know, I'm sure I have written adventures that were too wordy. And me, sure too. I have. I have. Sure I have written adventures that were not wordy enough. Um, you know, I wrote the eighth, I think, adventure in the series you're talking about. Yeah, it's and, not that one. And well, I I know well that I remember that I there was no party where you were trying to get information out of people, um, but you know it was it was a similar thing to that. You want you don't want to if you try to avoid writing a an over linear adventure where you want to give options right, then you want to. It's I think the most important thing now we're going to talk about adventure design right mm-hmm. is to. Tell the DM what the goal of the encounter is. And sometimes that might be one goal. They need to get this information. Um, and that sometimes it might be a bullet point list of the information that they need to get. Um, then it just becomes a matter of, are you going to let the DM decide how they get that information? Yes. Right. Or are you going to list every single thing that the characters might do to help the DM? Or do you just list the the top two things that the, you imagine the players would do? You know, it's it's yeah, it's, it's tricky, just, right? It's what I said, right? It's it's some DMs are going to be like, "How dare you tell me how to run the adventure?" Yeah. And some DMs are going to be, "I have no idea how to run this adventure unless you tell me." It, it's also so, like uh, writing a party scene in a D and D adventure is not like and writing it well um, mm-hmm. is not easy. Like it's it's because it's not the typical thing that D and D does normally. Yeah. Um. It's not it's not hard. It's not as undoable as it used to be, but it's definitely outside of the uh, comfort zone for Dungeons and Dragons. True. One, I'm going to look up this adventure because one that I really loved was one that was written by Tom Lamell, the uh, dungeon master. Dungeon bastard. It was the third, uh, it was a Bald Man Games trilogy, uh, Core 3-3. I don't remember the exact title right now. Um, and you have to, you're, you've found out a problem in the first two adventures in the trilogy. And, and I wrote the first adventure in the trilogy, Dan Dillon wrote the second, and Tom wrote the third. And Tom's adventure is a brilliant way to run that sort of you're at this party and you're trying to figure things out. And, you know, he gives scenes, but he also gives great transitions. And, you know, what if things go off the rails? There's this. Uh, it's it's wonderful. Okay. Well. So if you like a good uh, party investigation sort of adventure, then Core 3-3, the spirited investigation from Tom Lamell and Bald Man Games is for you. Very cool. Very cool. Uh one more thing before we get to our topic for the day. Uh, I think I think it might have been... It was M.T. Black had put a, a tweet out there asking us if we were going to turn our adventure design series into a book. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think I will be releasing the, this, the, what we've talked about in some form. Uh, I don't know that I'm ready to talk about it yet, but... One place you could go is to Engine Publishing that has a series of books on a 
great many topics, including adventure design, I'm sure. No, they don't. Really? That's why we should probably write one. Yeah, we probably should. Yeah, they have they have um they have a Eureka, which is 501 plots, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit about plot development in there. And they have uh, masks, a thousand one NPCs, but then they also have the game mastering uh, books, which is Never Unprepared, uh, Odyssey, and um, oh man, I'm bad. I forgot the third one. I should know. This. Sorry, John and Phil. Uh, <laughs> and, and whatever the third one is, there's a third one. Right. And then they have Unframe, which is all about improv game mastering. Yep. But they don't have an adventure design one. Specific adventure design book. Well, you know, Engine Publishing would be a great uh, place to, to write a book for that. Yeah, and since we own it, you know. Yeah. That's, it's funny how that works. Funny. All right. Well, I just wanted to throw that out there. But, yeah, I mean, I also mentioned it because I, I feel like there might be some format that Sean is writing about adventure design that will be coming out very soon. It's quite possible. Quite possible. I'm not sure, though, but it's mm-hmm. possible. All right, let's get to our main topic. We're going to talk about Acquisitions Incorporated. This is part two, uh, growing your franchise. We're going to cover the first half of of this chapter, which we're going to hit the um, the franchise like advancement stuff. And um, is that is that all that's in there? It's really the franchise advancement stuff. You get kind of like how to set up your staff and your your HQ features and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's get into it. Um, this is a really cool chapter. I actually really enjoy this stuff. It's um cuz it's it gets away from the class stuff which there's tons of class stuff to me. Um and this gets into other ways to utilize organizations and money and things right. like that and NPCs. Mm-hmm. Doesn't love a good NPC. Yeah, I I love I love this chapter and I love the book itself. Um now I worked on it, but I didn't obviously write the whole thing and there's many parts I didn't work on. And so what I love about the book, what we try to do overall, is to create something that is that covers three categories. It covers functionality, making running your game easier. It covers cool narrative points, right? Telling a better, more deep, more resounding story. And then cover mechanics, right? Give the mechanically inclined game uh, player and DM more tools to bring r- rules into their game which help uh, help them run a game they like. Mm-hmm. So functionality, uh, narrative coolness, and uh, you know mechanical depth. I, I, we wanted to hit all three of those with everything that we could. Yeah. And so, I think yeah, I think that these franchise rules uh, do all three of those things. They they very much do. Um, I like to think of games as like uh, in sort of like phases. These days, it's it's really the blades in the dark thing, and some of the and like mouse guard that that has sort of put me onto this like because it, it what it does is it, it helps beat structure your game in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can have your adventure type stuff like where you're going out and and you know doing the actiony part of whatnot, but then you can have the other side of it where you are at your your home base or in your neighborhood or wherever talking to people and like building those personal stories too to go along with it, and then eventually you can sort of mix those things together if you're playing your longer campaigns. Yep. Um, also, it just gives you the, those moments of peace, so it feels like the moments of action are much more intense. Right. And and what it does, too, is it allows you um, – it's kind of along the lines of what you're saying, but you know how sometimes you're when you're running an adventure and there's combat, 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 and you're like, I just need uh, you know a bit of role-playing, or I need something because it's just – this this is turning into a grind. Well, let's if, let's, if you let's ha- scale if you, that. Oh, yeah. Let's scale that. What if it's just dungeon crawl after dungeon crawl after adventure after adventure, and there's nothing in between that? Right. And so this lets you do that in an adventure, and then come and do this, and it 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 lets say, so if people want that combat 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 combat. Um, in their adventure itself, this is another way to alleviate that for people that need a break. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have to put the role-playing in your adventure if you don't want. You can get the role-playing in this kind of side business. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the franchise rank, that is mm-hmm. this thing. Oh, I wanted to say something about this book, too, like reading the text. This thing is always about narrative first. Everything about this is is about like if you have an NPC, give them a name, give them some traits, make them interest, make this NPC more than just the cook, make this NPC more than just a these NPC crew that you have, more than just uh, 
the people that garden. Like mm-hmm. they have a look, they have a they have tendencies. They were something before they were working for you. Like this this book suggests that you do all of that stuff, and it does it constantly, which is great to me. I love that. Like that that's what when Sean mentions the narrative part of it, giving depth and breadth to your story. Uh, that's how you get depth and breadth to your story. It's sort of like if you read a George R. R. Martin book, he's always talking about food because mm-hmm. that gives it some um, all, like depth to it so it's not just you know politics right. and killing people. Right, because we all eat, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And people all have names, and they all have, they all have stories and lives. That's true, that's true. Even, even if they aren't the characters. Yep. It also makes it harder to kill them, or not as hard <laughs> to kill them. You know, or, it depends. Right, or it gives a little more emotional depth when... They are killed. Or fired. Or, yeah, or fired, or turn against you, or you drive them away, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the franchise rank now. So it, it hits it at the um, the tiers that we're all accustomed to. At least that's the suggestion. You know, 1, 5, 11, and 17. Yep. That's when your rank goes up. Right. And that matters. Right. It has a mechanical impact. And, sure. And, and other impacts on top of that. So I just want to talk about tier for a second because it, this might be something that you know if you're newer to D and D you didn't even realize, but you know D and D does divide their their story and their mechanics into these tiers. Um, one to four is sort of your small heroes, right? You your local heroes. Five to ten you move on to do larger uh, regional type of of adventuring. 11 to 16, now you're talking about multiple regions that you that are being affected by the actions that you're taking, if not the entire world uh, by, the, by the end of that tier at level 16 or so. And then level 17 or 20, the characters are so powerful that the stories that they get involved in are really dealing with world-spanning, if not planar and universal sorts of matters. Uh, also, if you really study the the mechanisms inside of the game, there are, there are definitely power jumps at those those spots too. For sure, yeah, like it's I mean, designed specifically for that. Right. I mean, from from four to five is huge. Yeah, and really, from uh, ten to eleven, there's a lot more there than I thought there was. Mm-hmm. Because the, those spells are different. Like the yes. um, the what are they? The, the six level spells. Yep, I think they're six level spells. Six level spells are very, in a lot of cases, or at least in a lot of the some of the stuff that people get, like around eleven, level eleven, it's very different from the stuff before that. Yeah, and then at level like seventeen to twenty, you're getting your capstone abilities. Yeah, and, and we're starting to get level nine right. type spells too, and, spells, and yep. those things. Because yep. a lot of the, you're right, a lot of the capstone um, abilities for classes, they're in that seventeen eighteen range, right? Yep. So, so we uh, this deals right along those lines. So when you become a franchisee for Acquisitions Incorporated, you get a license to ex- operate exclusively as adventurers in that area. Now, that doesn't mean other adventurers can't be there. It means other Acquisitions Incorporated adventurers can't be there. Sometimes. Most of the time. Yeah, except when they are. <laughs> and that's a whole you know intrigue sort of thing that you can bring into the campaign. Mm-hmm. But the the license then that you get for your region goes right along the lines of what we've been, what we just talked about. So when you're a level one or rank one franchise, you're dealing with a settlement, right? You're in a, a settlement and the, the area just around it. So you know you're in um, Fandelver, mm-hmm. or Fandlin, sorry, Fandlin, and uh, and just you know the the local region. When you go to t- rank two, that now you're going to get a territory, right? You're going to get not just a settlement, but a larger area around it that might include multiple settlements. Tier three, now you're talking about a large territory that you have a license for. And you're, ta- you're and talking about I, the Sword Coast now. Yeah, right? and it might be worth saying, like, this could overlap with other Acquisitions Incorporated um, groups, but you're working with them or maybe overseeing them. So, yep. like, you become sort of like a manager, a, a brand manager for that area. Right, right. you're now in middle management. Uh-huh. Congratulations. Congratulations. You're in trouble. And, and, uh, yes. And with Tier 4, now you're talking about, like, extra planar license. Right now, oh, go, go into Eberron and start your uh, franchise there. You know, that sort of thing. Even though um, you started on the Sword Coast. Exactly. In a wagon. Exactly. Or, you know, w- in whatever way you want to deal with extra planar. You could have, you know, your franchise on Avernus 
Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's talk a, real quick about this other thing that I find to be interesting because it implies something. Um, a lot of the, these these areas, these ranks, they also cover the rights to engage in trade mm-hmm. with like a number of one or more uh, cities or settlements outside of your area. So, sure. like at rank one, it's one settlement outside your area or your region. So, like that indicates that you you should be doing businessy type things. Yes. Like there there is a subtle you don't have to but it envelops that you should it envelops sorry it uh in it, it makes it feel like you should be right and so you know it could be opening a mine or it could be you know creating dolls right it could be anything uh, it, it you can make it as quote unquote normal D and D as you want um, so it could just be creating a trade route but mm-hmm. it could get could get Wacky, like you would see in uh, in a, the Acquisitions Incorporated campaign itself, uh, where you're doing things outside the norm of a regular fantasy D and D game, but it would make sense, uh, you know, in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving on from there, the nice thing about the franchise uh, is that you get some staff with it. Mm-hmm. Like these are NPCs that. Do for your for your dues, which you have dues that you'll have to pay, like like a licensee, uh, a franchise fee, sure, every month. And if you don't pay it, it goes bad for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, you get you get some amount of staff, like that's part of that franchise fee. You get um at the lowest levels, you get like just a few people, a major domo, some untrained hirelings, and a skilled hireling. Which I like this a lot because those the untrained hireling and the skilled hireling, they actually relate that back to rules from the dungeon master's guide. True. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, in the DMG, it talks about exactly this. So what the what the Acquisitions Incorporated book does is it just yeah you know, it kind of puts a uh, it puts a, a label on it, right? It, mm-hmm. it puts a placeholder over it so you can make it fit within this sort of corporate world. Yeah, and uh, untrained hirelings they they just they say go look at the chapter five of the player's handbook, but they also give some other stuff like they're general laborers. They right. just do stuff like they're cleaners or servers or, you know, gardeners, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you could, but they they do the thing that I mentioned before, like give them some personality, give them a leader that acts as the leader for their group of untrained laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, do that stuff. Uh, maybe yeah. give them you know some ideals and bonds and flaws and things like that. And right. that is a that is a through line for all this stuff. Yep. As a gr- give them a personality individually if you can, but if not, give them a personality as a group. Right. Yes. Maybe they were former soldiers in an army. Maybe they were former thieves in a guild that got broken up. Uh, you know, maybe they're a family. So, so even if you don't want to individually name all of them, uh, if you give them this group thing, you're still creating a story, uh, and you're still giving yourself the tools to work that story into your, the ongoing narrative of the of the franchise itself and of the adventuring group. Um, without having to delve too deeply into details. Um, I'll get to the major dome in a second, but there's also the skilled hireling, which uh, they, they refer to as interns. And if you've ever paid attention to anything Acquisitions Incorporated, you know, interns are in, interns are the, the, the special guests that they often bring in to play games. Now, you're not going to necessarily do that. You could if you wanted to. Right. But uh, the, in, the skilled hirelings, they, um, they actually have a number of uh, weapons, skill, or tool proficiencies. Yep. And they're also, you know, you can look in the in the Dungeons Masters guide for that stuff. But if they're if they're um, gonna go adventuring with you, it's suggested that you make their uh, their challenge rating. Like if you pull a stat block, it's supposed to be half of whatever the highest level character is. Yep. Or now that uh, we have the sidekick rules out. Yeah. Just make them a sidekick. Make them sidekicks. Yep. Um, the other thing about them is that they have they'll have the loyalty rating. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're adventuring with you, and you can only really bring one adventure, one skilled hurling with you at a time on, a, on an adventure. Like you can do more if you want to, but that's the suggestion that they make in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, they suggest doing that to 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 not disrupt the balance. Right. Like have one half the CR or sidekick. Uh, but like it also then has a, a link to the uh, at least in the D and D Beyond. By the way, D and D Beyond is wonderful. Um, yes, I'll, it is. I'll just constantly be saying that. Yep. Um, Use the use the the loyalty rules that are in the DMG. It's really good. Yeah, and it also gives you as the DM a little leverage now, right? Uh, to to tell stories because they've got this hireling who they're bringing along. Uh, 
you know, if they start to abuse that hireling, then you get some pushback um, narratively on what happens. Uh, this hireling could put up with it. They could uh, put up with it for a price, or they could become a liability down the road if they are abused too much. Yes. Um, do you know what else this really does effectively? It teaches people, in my opinion, because of some of the the, um, the suggestions for like where to where to place them power level wise and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It'll help game masters figure out how to actually use GMPCs or uh, NPCs as, as player like to adventure with the players. Yep. Like these are this is all good stuff because they're they're not the overpowered power trip fantasy. They're just people who are working, right? Yeah, yeah. they're just trying to make a living just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So coming at it from that point of view, it can be very useful to to learn that skill. Yep. Uh, the the other type of hireling you could have is called crew. Um, we'll go to Major Domo back in a minute. I just want sure. to get crew Absolutely. out of the Let's way. Let's get the crew out of the way. So people were asking, what's the difference between like a crew and a, a an untrained uh, hireling? Uh, the crew is there starting at the second tier to basically manage your headquarters especially if you have a mobile headquarter like a ship or a, a battle balloon or something that moves or a and, wagon i and, love the or, wagon yeah, sorry even a wagon uh, you know it needs to be it needs to be run someone needs to steer it and maintain it so that's really what the crew is there for um, you know hirelings untrained hirelings are more you know do these specific skills you know keep our garden uh, do this whereas the crew is there to maintain the headquarter per se yeah, they're um, and they they are. I feel like they're. Is that was that the intent of the design? Because like when I read it, I'm like, the crew is um very much like the the untrained hirelings in a lot of ways, except they're just more backgroundy. Like those are the ones that I feel like you give a, give them a face to, basically, or you just have the the untrained hireling be the face of the crew, and they do stuff. Yeah, I mean that's that's totally fine too. Um, you know, it was just a separation um, between hirelings, untrained hirelings do anything. Crew are specific to uh, keeping the, especially the mobile franchises going. Yeah, because they, they never leave a franchise and cannot perform franchise tasks. Exactly. They I don't stay... remember if the unskilled hirelings can or not. Yes, they can. So that that is where it's very different. That is... Yep. The different role that they 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 truly if if you want mechanically or at least story wise what the the major thing is that they do differently it's that yep and again the same with the crew as with everyone else you know these are the people if you have an airship if you have a battle wagon uh, they're manning it right they're manning the weapons they're manning the, the the helm and you don't want to upset them because you don't want a mutiny right in the middle of a battle. Mm-hmm. If you're in the air, you know that's that's super important. So, you know, as the DM, you have options, narratively and mechanically, um, to to reward or mess with your players uh, as you need to. Yep. Um, the other fun thing about this stuff, oh, well, we'll talk about the major demo too, is um, like you can actually have a scene or a sequence where you're doing the interview process. Mm-hmm. Like, you could just, like, here's the, like, you don't have to go through all the interviews, but, like, you can have, like, a like a montage or whatever, or have, have a couple of groups, at least, that come in that are interviewing for these positions, because that's the kind of game it is, right? Like, yep. and it, it could be ridiculous. Uh, if anybody had seen Deadpool 2, when they were, when Deadpool was interviewing for uh, 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 the, the superheroes, which is, um oh, my God, I'm so bad, not the X-Men, X-Force. Yeah. Yep. That uh, that there, I think that's the name of that. What his name, what his group was called. Uh, that was hilarious. It was yeah. a good, it was a good gag. And you've seen that gag a, a thousand times in a bunch of different movies. So sure. And it's also a, a way to give choices, right? You you there's there's one hireling, skilled or unskilled, crew or major domo, who is perfect for the job, except they've got, you know, except they're obviously evil, right? Uh, and you don't know whether you can trust them. On the other hand, you have this person who is so good, who will be so loyal, but they're just not the best at what they do. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's you're running you're part of a corporation. It's okay to have somebody evil on your team, right? Sure. Why not? I mean, you're already part of a um 
I won't say evil, but you know, I don't know if they're necessarily good people. Well, uh, organization. I, mean, I, I think it's. I don't know if we said that last week, but it's important to say is you can run acquis- the acquisitions incorporated head office itself in many different ways as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can run them as a total, you know, totally powerful oversee domineering group, or you can run them as they're just running by the seat of their pants like everyone else. <laughs> um, you can run them as as good. You know, you could run them as people who are helpful and they they want what's best for everyone, or you can run them as a totally evil, uh, out for themselves and will screw anyone else over organization. And strangely, um, you could run them as those things at different times during that, the course of the campaign. That is precisely that. That is that was my next sentence. So you've got it exactly right. You know, they can be great up until a certain point, and then all of a sudden. Oh yeah, did we mention the you know ten thousand gold piece annual franchise uh, dinner that we hold? You pay us uh, ten thousand and we serve you dinner. You know a- anything like that? Um, mandatory. Yeah, mandatory for sure. Uh, so, but, you know, but we just paid you our thirty thousand gold piece fee for the month. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we had a problem at the home office with the plumbing and it needed to be fixed. And, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's. You can run it in in any way uh, that that fits the campaign you want to run. Well, well, you don't have the cash. Well, we got this adventure that you can go on in Avernus. <laughs> precisely, precisely. Oh well, in that case, um, you yeah. got a buyer for some soul stones or soul shards mm-hmm. or soul coins. Soul coins up yep. there, right? Yep. <laughs> we want you to deliver these soul coins to this demon. Oh, did we mention where he is? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So oh. there you go. Let's talk about the major domo. Yes. So you, you sort of mentioned the Major Domo a little bit, but the Major Domo, they're, they administer your headquarters. They're actually pretty important because while you're out do, running around adventuring and whatnot, they're taking care of all your uh, bills and, uh, you know, your people and dealing with stuff. So they're generally, they're, they're uh, proficient in charisma persuasion um, and then two skills of the, the DM's choice. And, uh, you know, they, they hang out, you know, they, they take care of things. That's their, that's their, their gig. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about them before. Uh, when we talked, when I, I mentioned um, that at, at the end of chapter one, there was like a major doma with with like a like a um, like a couple of interesting traits, mm-hmm. but this this goes a little bit deeper into it. Um, it. It encourages the game master or dungeon master to use the the creating non-player character rules in chapter four of the dungeon master's guide. Mm-hmm. So that's how you can you know fill that kind of stuff out. Um, but that, that's that's kind of what they do. That's actually not kind of. It's what they do. Yeah. Although depending on who they are and what their backstory is, they might have different influences on the um, the headquarters itself. Right, and it's like any other uh, character in any story, whether it's a, a novel or a movie or a TV series or a comic book or whatever. Um, you know, you could play with them. You could do different things with them you can make them you know as loyal as you want you can make them as disloyal as you want um they can be someone to count on and turn they could be an an enemy for a while until the the characters defeat them and and show mercy on them and then they become a stalwart companion uh it could be anything so you know use that to the best of your ability as as a narrative tool or as a functional tool or yeah. as a uh, mechanical tool. Yeah, it does suggest that they they should be in line with the franchise like mm-hmm. as far as their goals go and right. they should be I stress should be. Right. An ally and steward for the party. Yeah. Now that doesn't yeah. mean they have to be, but that is right. that is generally what you're supposed to do with them. And and you know, it it's it depends on how comedic and how dramatic you want to be, right? I if if I when I am running one of these games, what I am doing is I am totally making them an ally to the party. Mm-hmm. I, I will give them quirks. I will give them comedic uh, elements, but I am not going to make them a dramatic uh, villain unless the the party does something that would make them so. Yeah, I just like the idea that they are at their at their core evil, but like they're looking out for the the um the franchise. Mm-hmm. So, like, they will be cutthroat in their dealings and whatnot, and they will, you know, right. go to the extra... Uh, they they will put in the extra effort and go the extra mile and work the 60-hour week, 70-hour week. Mm-hmm. But when they do that, like, they uh, they will resort to some du- duplicitous and terrible tactics, up to and including uh, murder and extortion to uh, right. to do what you need to do. 
Right. And, you know, one thing, and that, that's, a, that's a great thing. A lot of times there's a conflict within the party because of that, right? You capture the goblin leader. He has information. You've got a paladin and you've got an assassin in the party. And the paladin, you know, don't, yes, don't. Oh, the paladin leaves the room. We do what we have to do, get the information, on we go. Um, you know, sometimes that tears apart a party. It, it ruins a campaign. Um, if you can move that outside of the group dynamic into an NPC, then you have less, uh, you still have that sort of drama of, of a campaign without the internal bickering uh, of the party. Uh-huh. For instance, like, um, here, I'll give you an example. So say there's a, like a rival adventuring party in town like a rival adventuring company, but you're kind of busy doing your thing, like you're off on an adventure. Uh, then you come back from that, and there's like a, a line item in your in your uh, your cost. It's like 750 gold pieces for uh, for petty cash. And you're like, hey, Major Domo uh, Vex, what was that all about? And it's like, oh, uh, I uh, you know I just had to you know throw a party for the for the for the people. Like, and right. they're, they're kind of evasive about it, but like. When you look into it, really, they hired an assassin to poison the other adventuring party. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's kind of an investigation going on in the background because of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so lots of great story can come from that, from any NPC. But making an NPC like this who is so uh, entwined with the, the party and the story of the franchise mm -hmm. uh, becomes a very powerful tool. Yeah, because they'll solve problems for you. But uh, they, you might not like the way that they solve, the, solve those problems. True story. All right, let's talk about the HQ because the HQ is fascinating to me. I like the headquarters. There's a bunch of like little mechanics that go along with it as you as you rank up and things like that. So, um, the first thing it says is this should be a group design. Like you should group, you should design this thing together, right? Like everybody should figure out what you kind of want to do because it's it's all of your your HQ, right? Um, then it's about getting sort of the, like the benefits together. So uh, sometimes the characters will give those benefits. Uh, and, and other times, it, it could be the people that you hire. So that, that'll that help give you some ideas for kind of what you want your headquarters to look like. Um, my favorite one of the examples was definitely the, the wagon. I love the idea of having a wagon as my mobile headquarters at the yeah. beginning. Even though they tell you, like, you shouldn't have, like, mo having a mobile headquarters is sort of a um, a benefit later. Like, having having that wagon is great even right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's not terribly too powerful because it can't go that far or that fast. No. Right, so so that's fine, but that's what the C team has. Uh, they have a wagon that they they take. Yeah, it's so uh, good. Yep. Actually, I didn't know that. I haven't actually listened to the C team ever. Yep. I should probably listen to them. It sounds pretty funny. Um. So your your headquarters is a mundane site to start with. Um, you it could have been se selected or handed down by AI, and uh, it can be a bunch of different things. So that's 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 how that kind of works. Um, it's basically the where you get to expand all your stuff from. So, um, uh, I guess the next thing to think about is like, what does it look like? Um, all that stuff. I don't know. Like it doesn't do much at that point. Right. Right. Yeah. You're still just talking about making it, making it your own without having a great deal of power in it. Um, but you know, as you, as you expand up from like to rank two, now you can double its size. Mm -hmm. Um, then, you, but when you start getting into rank three, now you're start starting to get into uh, even with rank two, you're starting to put weapons on it, right? Yes. Uh, so if you're going to put weapons, it's kind of like Chekhov's gun, right? If you're going to put weapons on the thing, you may as well attack it as, yeah. as the DM. It also it also can transport at that point. Mm -hmm. Like it, even if right. it's like a um, a, a static it's supposed to be a static location, like you have to figure out how it moves because it can move. Yep. And then, yeah, so when you get to rank three, then, now you're starting to get into arcane features. So it can be, you know, as a, as a bonus, you can uh, cover it in darkness or fog. You can be up in the clouds. You know, you can do, uh, you can change its appearance. Yeah, you um, also get another choice from rank two or one. Yep. yep Mostly so, rank two, I would imagine. Yeah. So, you know, in general... It's just a way to build a stronghold. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second now. So mm -hmm. let's talk about rank two. 
one, you get a co- cosmetic choice. You can gussy up the way that your thing looks, right? Like, so your wagon can now be like gilded on the outside. It can have um or illusory, not not illusory, but like um like panels that change scene, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it or it can change color, like whatever you want it to be. There's a whole bunch of things. So they mentioned like you can have a, a ship that you have uh, decked out in like brass fixing, so it looks like a, a bronze dragon or a brass dragon. Mm-hmm. That's one of the one of the um the examples but it's, it's really cool and then of course expansion right like you can have another tower or a level to your to your you can have another um floor to your inn or your your spot that you have in the in a tower in sharn or whatever mm-hmm. um you could have another wagon like you now have a wagon train personally i like the idea of having a door inside that uh you open and it just like a little pocket dimension yep <laughs> like that's that's where i would go with it that's me though uh, and then transportation, like you can move up to thirty miles a day. Um, I mean, you could probably do more. Like, and if you have, like, for instance, the wagon one, it can teleport. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never, you don't know, how, you know where you're gonna end up, but you don't know how you're gonna get there. Yep. <laughs> Which is what they su- suggest in the book. Right. Um, and like Sean mentioned, the weapon and the weapon, the idea behind the weapon is it's supposed to be a siege weapon. It's supposed to be operated by two people. Um, it could do some damage, but it's really bad against hurting. Um, small groups of individuals. Right. Like, it's a scale thing. Like, it's for fighting dragons and things yes, like that. Exactly. Yeah, so those are the things to remember about it. There are, there are mechanical things that kind of go along with this, or at least story-based suggestions that kind of go along with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the that's at Tier 2. Uh, that's pretty neat to me. Um, when you kick the Tier 3, like you mentioned, there's like an arcane thing that comes along with it. And Sean mentioned that already. It could, there's a number of pieces that you can utilize for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, I mean, it's really where the imagination can go, and as long as the game master approves it, and it doesn't seem like it's going to get all weird and game breaky and whatnot, because this stuff is supposed to be cool, but it's not supposed to be, um, uh, like overpowering. I mean, it's supposed right. to have the same powers like a guards and board spell, or sure. in that in that area. That's yep. the idea. Yep. Um, the arcane feature part, like. You could have all sorts of cool stuff, like uh, the the examples they have are the ever changing ship and or a spectral waitstaff. So like, that's essentially a seeming spell, mm-hmm. or um, you have a, co- a constant unseen servant spells being being around. Like these things aren't supposed to give you a lot of mechanical advantages. They're just supposed to be neat. Mm-hmm. Then um, what's the next one? Uh, is there, that, no, the other one was like you can pick a thing mm-hmm. from from the previous tier. So, like, you can have a second weapon, or your weapon can do more damage. Maybe that's the time that you expand your weapon can actually hurt, like, smaller groups of people, too, right? Like, right. that that's a thing you can do. Like, right. oh, now it's precise, so it can actually, like, harm that right. group of goblins. Or, you know, if you have a wagon, it, it shoots a, uh, a shockwave spell out of the front. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. neat. Yep. I like the idea of the statue. Mm-hmm. There's, like, a walking, like, you could be in a statue, like, that kind of walks around. That, that's always fun. So then, then it's like you know, what it, it can usually smack stuff. Like if it was Big B's hand, or uh, when you get more precise, maybe maybe the smack just more, does more damage, or it causes like a little earthquake in the area around it, right? Yep. I, I think one of my favorites is the glider launcher. The if glider got, launcher. Like, if you've got a battle balloon, it's you know you could shoot uh, a glider out of it that can hold you. So if you're getting attacked, you can just glide away. Oh, that's so good. I'm just I'm reading it now. I didn't read that one before. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Oh, and it's immune to poison and psychic damage. That makes sense. Yep. Uh, yeah, that that sounds solid. Although, uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not proficient, you might need to make checks. Yeah. Because to pilot the glider successfully. Right. I mean, is gl- I guess you just say glider proficient glider. Like, is that what you do at some point? Like, you just take a level and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna be proficient in glider because I yeah. don't know if that's a thing, right? Yeah, tool uh, airship because there's like navigation, so. So at ranks three and four, you also get um, another one of those choices we talked about. Um, at, at rank four, you get a secret feature. I love the secret feature. That's the, that's the glider launcher is one of those secret features, right? Yep. Yep. Um, the escape. There's like an escape pod, like as, as an example. Uh, it's like the 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 head like shoots off of the statue and flies away, right? right. Like stuff like that. Yep. Uh, they're hard to see too, so they actually have some. Like, you have to make a, D- a DC 25 intelligence investigation check or wisdom perception check to notice these things. Right. Like, for, for, for people who are um, trying to attack you or 
cause you trouble. So it's really hard for people to know that you have it, which is neat. Yeah. And again, if you're building these things, it, you know, for your as the DM, if your group are putting these things in, at some point you have to make them useful. Mm-hmm. So the you know the god who the franchise has upset because they raided its tavern or raided its temple is coming after them. So now the escape pod is necessary. The gliders are necessary, right? The extra dimensional rooms in your tavern are going to come in handy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like those, those, all that stuff should be fodder for story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of having it on the table if you're not going to use it at some point? Yep. Um, so that's that's the building up your headquarters as you tear up. Then there's the costs because everything gets more expensive as you go up. So. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty simple. Like to calculate this stuff, there's a baseline cost mm-hmm. for each of these things. You can kind of figure it out from this chart that they have in in the book, and then there's a, a multiplier depending on the tier that you're at. So like, mm-hmm. if you're at if you're at tier one, it's just times one. Mm-hmm. So if I remember correctly, if you have a um, if you have a wagon, it's 15 gold pieces a month, and it's mm-hmm. times one, so it's always 15 gold pieces a month until you get to tier two. Yep. Then it's uh. 1.5, so it's like 22 gold pieces a month to maintain your wagon, including all of your staff. Yeah. Because yep. it's all included in there. So this, it's a real easy mathematical uh, equation. Yeah. Like, you don't have to do a ton of math. You can use a calculator on your phone or whatever, you, you know, paper, if you prefer paper. Uh, the thing is, is once you get a little bit more uh, intense, I suppose, with what you have, then it could cost more. So, like, say you have multiple, like, satellite operations... Those also all get audit, a- added up together. Right, right. So, man, if you have a sailing ship that's, like, trading, and you have your wagon, and you have, like, an airship somewhere else, um, like, that is, the airship's 800, the sailing ship's 200, your wagon's 15. So that's 1,015 gold pieces. You just add that up, and then you just multiply it times the multiplier. It's yeah. still not that complicated. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's a, you know, a quick and dirty way to figure out, you know, what what you should be taking away from the party based on the, the treasure that they're getting. And you can always adjust it for different things as well, you know, on the fly. But it's a really easy and cool baseline way to, to figure this out. Yes, absolutely. Um, and if you really want to get more granular with it all, you could use the reoccurring expenses section from, of Chapter 6 of the Dungeon Master's Guide, but I feel like it's not necessary. Sure. Um, some of this money is also for the uh, the tith to the head office, you know, yep. to keep your, your license. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't ever pay the entirety of your thing, eventually your um, your uh, your business, like uh, the AI headquarters will be like, hey, what's going on? Especially if it's like two months or more that you don't pay. Yeah. If that's defaulting, it's a problem. It's kind of a huge problem, actually. They'll, they'll come in like send, send inspectors, maybe send a different organization to set up in your area, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're not able to get the money out of the area, someone else can. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's a corporation. There's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some other stuff, monthly business performance. This is something to do with the franchise task and downtime section, but we're going to talk about that next episode. Yep. Uh, I don't think there's anything else to talk about now. I think we've covered everything we're going to cover this week. No, and, and the cool thing is, as people have said uh, in reviews, even if you're not into Acquisitions Incorporated at all, you can use these rules for anything. You can use these rules for guilds. You can use these rules for other kinds of shipping businesses. Right. Any uh, sort of business that you want to put into your game doesn't have to be this kind of dark humor corporate thing. It can just be a guild. It can be any sort of medieval business, and, and you can build it with these rules. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, is there any other final thoughts besides that? Nope. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. I suppose we should do some Patreon shout-outs. Uh, Stephen Farrell, The Tabletop Bellhop, T. Acoustic, Theodore Atkinson, Thomas Bagley, Victor Wyatt, Zach Goins, Noah Bond, Austin Lemke, Chris Foster, or Best Chris, Dan Simons, David Walker, Donahue McCarthy, uh, Drew Smith, Evil Rich, Glenn Seiler, Jason Pitt, Jean Lorbert, Jeff Stevens, Jim Morrison, and John Just John. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our show notes. And you have access to our Slack room where you can chat with us about your favorite D&D topics. Yeah. Uh, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with a uh, Apple Podcast Review or a Podcast Review Anywhere. Mm-hmm. 
Apple Podcast is what many podcatchers used as their way to rate and rank shows. So if you listen and you want to leave a review, you can do so via Apple Podcast. Uh, Sean, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Sean Merwin, or go to our new forums, at forums.misdirectedmark.com, where we have uh, different channels, uh, including our very own Down With D&D channel. Yeah, if you post uh, comments there, we will generally respond to them. I try to check the forums at least three times a week. Yep. How about you, Chris? Where can we find you other than the forums? Uh, on Twitter, it's the Light 101, um, or at Misdirected Mark, which is the show in the network Twitter. That's another great way to get a hold of us. In fact, um, our uh, our manager Rob always manages to kick us those things when we get them. You can also just go to the website and leave a comment if you want. Um, we actually had some comments from um, some previous shows on there. I should probably bring those up at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, let's do that next time. Yeah. Uh, right. You can also catch other great shows, such as Zhang Yu Hustle. So if you like Wuxia, you can go there and listen to Eric Farmer and Eli Kurtz in Zhang Yu Hustle. Eric and Eli make their Kung Fu stronger by watching Wuxia films and then discussing how to apply their observations to game design, because they're designing a Wuxia game. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mm-hmm. Sean, buddy old pal, Mr. Mad Wizard yourself, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some corporate monsters. Corporate monsters? Ah! You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me! 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 I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. We're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me.